Hi, this is Father Nathan Hale from Desert Mission Anglican Church in the Sunny Slope neighborhood of Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks so much for joining us for the podcast today. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. You can find out more about our church, participate in worship, and sign up to attend in-person services at desertmissionanglican.org. That's desertmissionanglican.org. No matter what, never forget that God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's from 1 John 4, 9 through 10. And now here's the podcast. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, whenever there is a project around the house that needs to be done, or something that needs to be fixed, we often take great pride in being able to do it ourselves. From changing the wiper blades on the car to a remodel project to designing the living room, we know the satisfaction that comes when we can do these things without professional help. And maybe more importantly, without the price of professional help. (laughs) This is great whenever it can happen, uh, but we also know the frustration that occurs when we realize maybe halfway through the project that we are in over our heads. Uh, that despite our can-do attitude, we need professional help. This happens to me uh, with anything technical, which may be surprising since I am indeed a millennial, Uh, but I used to get in this ritual, especially in seminary, where at the critical hour, my laptop would go on the fritz. I would call my IT guy in franticness. He would rush to the library, fix the problem, explain the problem, I would pretend to understand the problem, and we would repeat the process every six months to a year. Uh, Our can-do attitude doesn't always cut it. In our Old Testament lesson today, we see King David with a similar do-it-yourself attitude, which we would think if there was ever a person deserving of such an attitude, it would be him. Yet as we will see, David is not able to build a house for the Lord. We see that his capacity does not meet this calling. But this, is how, this house is something that the Lord must build for David. And as we will see, this house is something that David needs. It is something that we need. And this is the main truth that we can rest our faith on today. That the Lord will build a house for David and he will establish our king forever. Now, when we think about David building this house for the Lord, we can't help but agree with his reasoning. Surely the Lord does deserve something better than a tent to dwell in. This is the reasoning that is behind some of the world's most beautiful churches. Yet, as we will see in this text, our can-do attitude and David's can-do attitude 
is not an asset in regards to the things of God and his dwelling and meeting with us, but is indeed a hindrance. And we begin to see this in our first point, that David cannot build the house. We can almost picture King David, maybe with a modern twist. He is at the height of his career. As verse 1 opens and tells us, the king lived in a house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. All those problems that he had with Saul for years, going about through the desert like an Israelite western, are finally over. He's in his kingly palace, a house of cedar, as verse 2 reminds us. Things are going pretty well for David. And out of just a good and godly gratitude, it only seems fitting to provide the same benefit for the ark of God. So he takes his idea. He takes it, maybe with blueprints in hand, to his spiritual project manager, the prophet Nathan. And Nathan gives him the green lights. All the permits are set. Uh, He's talked with the city of Jerusalem, I suppose. And Nathan says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And yet something happens that night to Nathan, which we see in verses 4 through 7. And we see that by what the Lord says, it reveals that what is wrong, uh, there is something wrong with David's can-do attitude, his do-it-yourself attitude. The Lord speaks to Nathan and reminds him, particularly in verse 6, that I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. In other words, Nathan, David, us, to quote the title of the handy little book by the late J.B. Phillips, your God is too small. What What do we mean by this? See, the problem with building God a house is not that the desire is inherently wrong. It's not inherently wrong to want to do something for God. This is indeed very good to be, uh, to have gratitude for what he has done. But the problem comes in is that what, uh, the problem comes in with viewing God as if he is made in our own image, that he Uh, reflects us rather than we reflecting him and we being made in his image. That is when we see him as needing us and us providing for him the things that God needs rather than God being the one who created us and giving us all the things that we need. Because God doesn't have needs, but he gives all things. God isn't bound to time or space, but out of his grace, he condescends into those things to meet us. And God's temple is not just meant to be in Israel, but through the whole creation. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. We begin to see, when we begin to view God in our image, rather than ourselves being made in his image, We are unable to rightly know him, unable to rightly serve him, and unable to rightly worship him. The most prominent example of this in the Old Testament is the episode of the golden calf. Moses has been up on the mountain for a long time, longer than a trip to the DMV. The Israelites are getting antsy, and so they tell Aaron in Exodus 32.1, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Just listen to the language that make us gods. You don't make a god. You don't make the true god. The very language is distorted. And even after experiencing such a great salvation as the Exodus, when the going gets tough, Israel returns to what they learned in Egypt. They return to making their own idols, making their own gods, gods that do not create all things, gods that do not uphold all things, but gods that you can carry in your pocket, gods that you can hold up like trinkets, gods that do not create you, and carry you and redeem you like the only true God, the Lord. We see Paul also correcting this way of thinking that because of sin, because of sin, the way we now prefer, the the way we now naturally operate is to have a small God, as J.B. Phillips said. We see this in Acts 17, 22 through 25, when it says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Indeed, this is our default mode, and it is the root of many of our problems. When we believe that God needs something from us, when we believe that God needs our personalities, our gifts, our money, or our resources, Our God is too small. When we believe that it is God who needs our good works rather than our neighbor in need, our God is too small. When we believe also that God is not the the gracious and sufficient giver of all things, when we believe that God forgives us by bargaining with us, by a transaction with us, rather than by pure gift, Our God is too small. When we believe that our sin is too great and we are too far gone, our God is too small. You see, when David or we assume that we are builders of a house for the Lord, rather than the Lord being the builder of the house for us, we fundamentally misunderstand who God is and how he works. He becomes small and we in our works become great. And this is why we need the truth of our second point. That the Lord will build a house for David. The Lord counters David's proposal by first reminding him of all that he has done. In verses 7 and 8, we see the Lord say to David, I took you from the pasture that you should be prince. I have been with you and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. This is what it looks like when our God is not too small, but the Lord of hosts. Notice that name, the Lord who leads an army, a fighting army, on behalf of his people and on behalf of those he has called. You see, while the history of idols and even a false understanding of the true God is centered on what humans must do, biblical faith, orthodox faith, be it Anglican or another form, 
is centered on what God has done. It is centered on what God is doing. It is centered on what God will do in the future for the sake of his people and for the sake of his creation. You see, ironically, when our focus is on what we must do for God rather than his work, is as if we are attempting to rob God of his glory. Where do we see this? Well, we see very clearly in one of the servant songs of Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, here the Lord tells of this coming Messiah, this coming Messiah that is going to redeem his people. And in verse 7, we particularly see some of the things that this Messiah is going to do when he comes. It says that he will come to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. And notice, what does it say after this deliverance? What does the Lord say after he works such a salvation? He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is most glorified in us when he is the one doing the saving, doing the healing, doing the restoring in our lives and in our situation. And so fitting it is then that the Lord goes on to make promises to David. He promises a great name, protection for his people, rest from all their enemies, and all of this is surely hearkening to the holistic welfare that is characterized so frequently in the Old Testament by the Hebrew word shalom. That is what God is doing. And look at the climax of this in our text. The Lord is going to build a house for David that is an offspring to rule God's people forever. God is the one doing for David's sake. And we see there is indeed an immediate fulfillment of this with Solomon. Solomon, his son, who was born from Bathsheba, born out of a sinful situation. And yet God works fulfillment in this. God works his saving work in this because Solomon is the one who builds a house for the Lord's name. And yet, we must also account that for this promise to hold true, for this promise to have impact for us, there must be an even greater fulfillment than Solomon. Because Solomon has clearly died. And worse yet, the temple that Solomon built has been destroyed. And it's not coming back. And if furthermore... If this is going to have application for us, then we need God to be king now. We need the good news that this king can bring. If our God is not going to be too small, but is going to be the Lord of hosts for us. So how is this fulfilled now? Well, we look no further than our gospel lesson. When we read these words again, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And what does this angel promise? He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, in this son that is coming, in this baby, David's desire is truly fulfilled. God's glory is fully magnified, and your need... Your need is abundantly supplied, is abundantly met. And it's met not in a grand show of strength and not in a grand show of dominance, but it is meant in the birth of Jesus, this little one, this baby, this one that we hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. This is how he comes. He comes through the manger, just as the story will progress on Christmas Day. And because this is true, it leads to our third point, that David's son will be king. Jesus is David's son, and his throne shall be forever. You see, while there were kings in David's line who needed to be reproved for sin, just as he said in verse 14, Jesus was the son and king of whom God could say of everything that he did, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the only king in David's line who could ever say that I always do what is pleasing to my father. And here it is good for us to ask, How is Jesus king? How does he build God's house? And what does this have to do with his incarnation specifically? And we find our answer in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When Paul tells us the background of the story, he tells us what's happening. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, Jesus did not come to see what kind of mess we have gotten ourselves into. He did not come to find us in our mess and to see what kind of elaborate do-it-yourself scheme we have to get ourselves out. But he came in order that he could be to us a true God, not a God that is too small. He came to be our God, and because his reign means that you are co-heirs with him, it means that you as well reign over sin, You as well reign over death, and you as well reign over the devil, and you as well will reign over anything that could ever separate you from the love of God. And because this is so, because Jesus reigns by a reign of grace, because it is a reign of grace, a reign that makes us sons and not slaves, a reign in which God comes down into the virgin's womb and manger rather than, trying, than you trying to ascend up to him, you trying to build something up to him, we see what God had in store for us all along. 
We see this in Hebrews 3, 5, when it says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. In conclusion, because God is not too small, because our God is not too small, he has condescended to become little, to become one of us, to live for you, to die for you, to raise for you, and now to reign for you. All of this he did to make you a son and daughter of the living God. And in this way, this way that we could have never imagined with our do-it-yourself attitude, God will have his house full of his beloved children, his beloved children who share in the victory and image of his firstborn son, the King Jesus. And all this he did for you before you knew anything of it. Amen.